Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. In his 1996 State of the Union speech, President Bill Clinton gave a kind of eulogy for what we now call big government. We know big government does not have all the answers. We know there's not a program for every problem. We know and we have worked to give the American people a smaller, less bureaucratic government in Washington. And we have to give the American people one that lives within its means. The era of big government is over. Clinton, a Democrat, saying those words that echoed Ronald Reagan far more than FDR, set a kind of rhetorical stage for everything that has happened in politics since. So much so, we tend to forget the next thing Clinton says in his speech is, but we can't go back to a time when citizens are left to fend for themselves. Today's political debate is framed as liberty and free market on the right versus big government on the left, but in reality, both sides of the aisle have been drawing America further from the ideal of what Jacob Hacker calls a mixed economy, one where business and government both play vital roles. He says the move away from this ideal has already damaged America and threatens our future. Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Jacob Hacker is professor of political science and director of the Institution for Social and Policy Studies at Yale University. He is the co-author of many books including a brand new book uh, co-written with Paul Pearson called American Amnesia, How the War on Government Led Us to Forget What Made America Prosper. He joins us today from the studios of Yale University in New Haven. Jacob Hacker, welcome back to where we live. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's a real pleasure to be back. So, so tell us, first of all, what the title of this book, American um, Amnesia, really refers to. Well, it's obviously the case that uh, amnesia suggests that we've simply forgotten um, what what the what government did, and I think that's a big part of the story. But but there's also the case that you know we whenever you see uh, amnesia in a movie, uh, it's brought on by some terrible blow to the head or something. And and I think we also feel like uh, there's an amnesia that's caused by the attacks on government. So that it's not just that we've forgotten how successful the mixed economy was, um, but also that over the last generation we've seen attacks on government become. Uh, just so much a part of our political discourse that we don't even recognize uh, today um, that uh, we really need an active government to, to, to have the kind of prosperity that, that all Americans want. Well, and that's why I started with Bill Clinton, because while his entire speech was not an attack on government, it, it tends to uh, lay a groundwork for a way of thinking and talking about government that uh, invites attack. Am, am I wrong about that? I mean, it was Bill Clinton near the end of the era of mixed uh, the mixed economy, or is Bill Clinton really kicking off something that has has changed in the way we talk about uh, American politics since? Well, I think Clinton is a really pivotal figure in this story, but not because he himself brought about this transformation, but because he was there 
uh, when I think the sort of last <clears throat> pillars of the mixed economy became very weak. Um, so one of the interesting juxtapositions in the book is, is uh, Dwight Eisenhower and Bill Clinton, who, who in their inaugural addresses spoke for about the same amount of time uh, and used about the same number of words. But Eisenhower spoke about government much more than Clinton did, and he, and he spoke about it mostly positively. Um, he, uh, he saw government's role as being primarily about protecting the nation from the Cold, you know, the cold War threat, but he also felt as if it was essential for the United States in the face of that threat to invest in education and highways and building up uh, a strong domestic economy that could be a beacon uh, to the free world. When Clinton took the stage in the 90s, the world had changed dramatically. Um, and in a lot of ways, um, that transformation was the reverse of what Eisenhower saw before him. He saw a Republican Party that was mostly pretty moderate uh, and that needed to basically accept active government to survive politically and to thrive uh, in governance. Uh, and he also saw a business community, a business establishment that had worked with government during World War II and that felt pretty positive about um, that active government role. Clinton, you know, he famously said after he came into office and he had to give up on some of his more ambitious, uh, you know, uh, middle class programs like a middle class tax cut and health care reform. He famously said, you know, we're Eisenhower Republicans, right? Um, you know, we're for free trade and the bond market. And, and isn't that great? And of course, he didn't think it was great. Um, he wanted to be the guy who re revitalized a kind of moderate third way, and instead he found himself uh, really being uh, having to accommodate uh, the much more conservative Republican Party and the much uh, much more financialized and much more conservative business community. And and by 1996, uh, when Newt Gingrich was in control of Congress, uh, he really sort of declared that. Not just was the era of big government over, but I think even more so the era of articulating the case for government, uh, particularly among the Democrats, who were to the last party that really was doing that, uh, was over. We're talking today with Jacob Hacker from Yale University. His new book, co-written with Paul Pearson, is American Amnesia, How the War on Government Led Us to Forget What Made America Prosper. We'll take some of your phone calls throughout this hour at 860-275-7266. And I want to get to this idea of the mixed economy. We'll, we'll be talking quite a bit about uh, some of the individuals who played large roles from the founding fathers all the way down to what maybe we can make of Donald Trump right now, some of the thinkers that have influenced people. But first, let's start with the concept, Jacob Hacker. What is a mixed economy, and how is it different than what we see today? Well, the mixed economy was an invention of the 20th century. and In many ways, I think it was the most uh, powerful invention of the 20th century because we had capitalism and we had government coercion uh, before we had the mixed economy. But in the 20th century, we started to see government being used actively, in part in response to popular pressures, in part in response to greater knowledge, uh, to really improve the welfare of citizens. So in the early 20th century, there was a public health revolution that added years to the American lifespan. I, I, I was shocked when I went back and looked, but before public health authorities stepped in and cleaned up water and made sure that children had access to clean water and, and clean milk, um, three in 10 kids 
uh, were dying before the age of one in many urban centers in the United States. Um, and life expectancy was, was well less than 50 years. Um, within you know, a, a generation, life expectancy was about 16 years longer, and that was almost entirely due to the fact that we cleaned up milk and water and we uh, just followed some basic kind of sanitation measures that made cities engines of innovation rather than places of, of despair. And that story plays out over the 20th century. I think you see it first with Woodrow Wilson and, uh, and, and Franklin Roosevelt and the expansion of government's role in the uh, 19 uh, uh, teens and 1930s, but you really see it reach its crescendo in the mid-20th century uh, during World War II. And the <clears throat> United States emerged from the world, not war, not just as a world leader, uh, but also with this amazing um, commitment uh, and support for a strong government role in encouraging prosperity um, and technology. And so the mixed economy really was that 20th century invention. And, and it, it took different forms over time, but it always had this character uh, that we describe in the book as being a kind of partnership, a, a tense partnership between government and markets. And the you know, there's a political economist, uh, Charles Lindblom, who used to teach at Yale. Uh, and, you know, as he put it, the strong thumb of government was needed to provide counterpressure and assist the nimble fingers of the market. You know, we wouldn't want to be all thumbs. Um, th that would be pretty awkward. But the thumb is a really useful thing to have. You need to have government to deal with some of the key areas where markets fall short. And, and that leads to the other um uh, the other metaphor that you use here is is if you've got nimble fingers and a strong thumb, that that is referring to the hand, the the infamous uh, invisible hand of, of the yeah. market versus the visible hand of government. Can you talk about these this distinction and how these two hands might work better together? Well, so the visible hand of government is really fundamental to to the mixed economy, and it's. I think there's a, you know, we say at the beginning of the book, which I, you know, I really encourage people, uh, Paul Pearson and I, when right, we wrote American Amnesia, we really tried to lay it out on the line right at the beginning of the book. When we say the book is about a pretty uncomfortable truth, that it takes a lot of government for advanced societies to flourish. And the reason you need that strong thumb is because decentralized markets do many, many things extremely well, but they fall short in, in a number of cases that economists have long written about, including Adam Smith, and that our founding fathers recognized there are public goods like defense and, and education. Uh, there are what are called positive externalities where – uh, like vaccines have a positive externality of crowd uh, that everyone who receives uh, that getting more people the vaccine is, of course, increasing the, the likelihood that everyone else will be safe. Uh, education has huge positive externalities. What that means is that the market alone will not produce enough of that good. Um, and then there are cases uh, where and, and this is a sort of harder one to talk about, but it really becomes important when we talk about tobacco and cleaning up our air and water, is that government has regulatory power that individuals uh, can't um, achieve on their own. And so if you want to encourage people to stop smoking or you want to clean up uh, you know, our gasoline, get lead out of our gasoline, if you want to clean up our air and water, the regulatory power of government is essential. And so that that idea that it takes a kind of uh, interdependent relationship between government and the market is, I think, the kind of seminal development of the 20th century. It's what made the political economies of rich countries possible, and it rested 
on these twin pillars of a strong, uni relatively unified business community that believed in at least some government role and, uh, and a relatively broad consensus that included moderate Republicans. Um, and those two pillars have eroded, and with it, uh, with that erosion, uh, we've seen the erosion of the mixed economy. Of course, that role isn't just regulatory. That's one piece of it. You you talk about how that has uh, increased our health outcomes over the course of the 20th century, how it's increased our educational outcomes. But there's also the role that government plays in jumpstarting innovation, the fact that so much of what we take for granted that, that we think is now market-based, all the amazing devices that are made by American companies, got their start because of government research grants, because the government actually jump-started the innovation. Yes, that's absolutely right. You know, last uh, week, uh, Andy Grove, the former CEO of Intel, passed away, and it was a, a really sad day, and Silicon Valley came together uh, to celebrate his life. Um, and what they haven't been celebrating enough is the degree to which Andy Grove's success and the success of Steve Jobs and other Silicon Valley pioneers rested on huge public investments. Um, so Andy Grove, of course, was a, a refugee of Cold War Eastern Europe. He came to the United States. He had no money, but he was able to go to City College of New York, tuition-free, decided he didn't like the East Coast. He moved out to the Bay Area. He went to UC Berkeley. Uh, UC Berkeley, as you probably know, is a land-grant college. It was uh, created under the, the Morrill Act of 1862, which gave federal land to, um, to states to set up colleges and universities. And then, he went, uh, then Andy Grove went to work for Fairchild Semiconductor, which was a firm that was basically creating transistors and circuits uh, for the Department of Defense and NASA. So he went on to found this incredibly successful company, but he always recognized and wrote about how important it was to have these public investments in technology and knowledge because no individual firm has the incentive to make those kinds of investments in basic science and how important it was to have that kind of training that he had um, that we're not investing to the same degree as we were a generation ago. And so when he passed away, I really saw it as a reminder of how much Silicon Valley uh, and all of the technologies that it's produced, uh, including the iPhone. Um, there's an economist uh, uh, who has found that every major component of the iPhone, uh, from GPS to, to, to that annoying voice <laughs> that, uh, that always asks you to repeat your questions, um, all come from uh, major public investment, that every real innovation that Silicon Valley has put out there has had some roots in this sort of broad public investment, which is going to be underproduced by the market. But I I think some would argue, though, that in the absence of big government investment in this, could the market actually provide some of those resources? Now that Silicon Valley has taken root in the way it has, and we see everything from um, major advancements in, I don't know, space travel from the private market to other things that the government used to take for granted, in the absence of government funding, could the market today in America right now, Jacob, step forward? Well, I think there are certainly areas where we've seen the private market uh, take off, but let, let's just be clear about what government investment does well. Government investment, first of all, in education, in making sure that people have the, the skills to participate in the knowledge economy is absolutely fundamental. And again, it's something that requires... Um, if not public education, at least public subsidies for education um, to, to succeed. And then the other thing is that we forget that a lot of these technologies to be brought to scale um, required um, shepherding by uh, 
government-financed academic institutions or by government itself. So the Internet is a great example. We actually know that when the Internet was first uh, uh, in its infancy, a lot of private companies were asked to be part of it and to, to take it off the ground, and no, none of them showed any interest in it because it was still such a speculative technology. And in areas like brain science and, na- and nanotechnology um, and others, um, it's this getting past this initial phase uh, and getting the kind of basic investment um, in science that, uh, that kind of creates the, the, and brings products to scale that can be taken by the private market, that's where government is most essential. So, and the last thing I would say, John, is that um, the regulatory side of government, which we see so much um, hand-wringing about and attacks on it, has been enormously successful in improving the quality of Americans' lives. And the, the example that I like to point out is if you go back to the 1950s and 60s and you go to any major city and it was it was a you know it was these cities were incredibly polluted um you know in 1953 New York uh, almost was shut down um by this uh, terrible period of lead in the air and soot um and according to recent analyses based on looking at the air in Beijing versus the air in American cities in some cities that improvement in clean air from the Clean Air Act onward um, in, 19, in the 1970s has resulted in about five additional years of life in some of these cities. So we're talking about an enormous improvement in people's lives um, that is a result of using that strong thumb in ways that are guided by science and that uh, are reflective of some of the limits of the market in dealing with things like uh, externalities, uh, like pollution, which no market actors have an incentive to take into account. Yeah, and, and what's so interesting about your book, Jacob Hacker, is there's so many uh, c- confounding and conflicting ideas. Of course, in China, perhaps uh, life expectancy not as long because of the terrible air quality in Beijing, but they can manage to get a high speed train that gets you between two major <laughs> yeah. cities a hell of a lot faster than you can get between Boston and New York. Well, let, let's take a break here. When we come back, we're going to find out how we got this way. The book is called American Amnesia How the War on Government Led Us to Forget What Made America Prosper. As we talk with Yale's Jacob Hacker, We'll be talking about the war on government, how it started, and how we ended up here. 860-275-7266. You can email us where we live at WNPR.org. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up this Thursday, join our program as we visit with consumer advocate Ralph Nader for a special live broadcast from his recently opened American Museum of Tort Law in Winstead, Connecticut. We'll learn a bit about this museum, which opened last year. It's literally in my little hometown. Uh, We'll also catch up on some of Nader's latest writings and get his thoughts on the 2016 presidential race. If you want to find out more, you can go to our Facebook page at Where We Live. Again, Ralph Nader at the American Museum of Tort Law in Winstead this upcoming Thursday with Where We Live. Today in the program, we're talking with Jacob Hacker. His new book is American Amnesia, How the War on Government Led Us to Forget What Made America Prosper. It it does, I dare say, Jacob Hacker, plow some of the fields that Ralph Nader has plowed in the past. Uh, It's some some interesting reading, and we're trying to to pull apart some of the ideas about the changes to the American economy because of the war on government. Before we get to the next part of the story, though, I want to get to a tweet from Jeff who says, the big difference between now and the Eisenhower years is that government is now dominated by high-cost union labor agreements. He then says, when government employees make more on average than taxpayers do, it makes no sense to spend more on government. Invest in the private sector, says Jeff. What do you say to Jeff? 
Well, first of all, I would say that um, there is there's no question in my mind that there are areas where government is wasteful and that union contracts uh, sometimes do contain uh, provisions that are that are too costly. But but I would point out to Jeff that um, one of the big results of our animus towards public employees who at the top end of the uh, skills distribution, folks with advanced training are generally underpaid relative to the private sector, is that we've essentially hollowed out our federal workforce. And, um, you know, if we had the same uh, share of the civilian population that was employed by the federal government as uh, outside of defense, as was true under Eisenhower, we'd have, a, you know, like a couple million uh, 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 more federal employees. And so what we've done essentially in saying that government is the enemy is uh, relied so much on these third parties and contracts that are that are often, I think, not very effective at delivering on their goals. So one of the stories of the book, and, and I think Jeff will find this, you know, resonates with him, is that in a lot of cases, we spend more than we should because we're not using government effectively. And sometimes that's because we don't want to acknowledge um, that uncomfortable truth that you need to have a fairly uh, strong thumb, uh, a fairly strong government uh, to deal with uh, social and economic issues. So, for example, uh, health care. In the book, we talk a lot about how we spend so much for health care. And if you look at what the federal government spends money on, the real story now and in the future is the rising cost of health care. Um, but other countries uh, – that um, that also have mixed economies uh, and in many cases have mixed economies uh, that have done better in producing uh, population health. One of the things that's really striking is how we're falling behind other countries in, in life expectancy and, uh, and, and the health of particularly of, of, um, of um, uh, white Americans. I don't know how many of your listeners have seen the, the the stunning results that show that death rates for for middle-aged white Americans have been rising while they've been falling uh, in almost uh, every other country and among almost every other group. But what what I would say is that because we're not using government effectively uh, to keep health care costs in line, because we're not using that strong thumb to bargain effectively uh, or to shape the market in ways that produce um, uh, more efficient care, uh, we're spending a lot more. And that's a story that I think we really have to uh, acknowledge, that if we're going to use government, which we, sh- which we have to, as we argue, then we have to also use it in a way that's efficient and effective. And that means sometimes we have to acknowledge more fully uh, the important role that it has to play. So l- let's talk about where this war on government started, and not just the war on government, but a war on the mixed economy that you say was such a backbone of the growth of America throughout the course of the 20th century. When did this war begin? Well, I think we should understand that if you go back to our founding, there have, there's always been huge tension about um, the role and size of government. But there was very broad agreement among the founders. Um, this went from you know, Alexander Hamilton, who was obviously, uh, as we've learned from the wonderful uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda musical, an advocate of a, of a strong central government, to uh, James Madison, uh, to even Tom and Thomas Jefferson. The founders all understood the necessity of having a central government that had ultimate power over taxes and uh, military um, uh, and military, uh, the military role abroad. Uh, so internal defense and external protection, as well as having the kinds of of regulatory and taxing powers necessary to have a nation-spanning economy. And um, we we saw this 
uh, role expanded, as I said earlier, during the 20th century. Um, and the, 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 the last generation or two have seen a real turn against that. And I would trace it back um, to the 1970s. Um, and during the 1970s, there were two really big blows to the mixed economy. One was uh, a terrible economic uh, crisis, some of it brought on by bad policies, some of it brought on by external shocks like the OPEC oil embargo that called into question government's role in managing the macro economy. Um, it shouldn't have called into question a lot of other things that government did, like investing in education or regulating uh, pollution. Um, and then second, during the 70s, we saw a pretty sharp shift in uh, both the Republican Party and the business community. Um, and that shift toward the right and toward a more anti-government role uh, blossomed in the coming decades. And the, the, the story we tell in the book is of how both the Republican Party and the business community, but particularly the business organizations that represent the larger business community, how they've transformed. Um, the business community, I think, has transformed uh, in part because of the financialization of our economy and the decline of manufacturing. Uh, and the Republican Party has transformed in part because the business community has and in part because Republicans figured out that they could attack, they could win politically by attacking government. And that, there's nothing, I think, more consistent in the Republican rhetoric of the post the Reagan and post-Reagan era as the idea that government is not the solution to our problems, as Reagan put it, but government is the problem. By attacking government, uh, they were able to gain control of government. And as we argue, they gradually learned, Republicans gradually learned that by undermining government, they could also gain politically because it was hard for Democrats to achieve what they wanted. And for much of this period, Democrats were in control of Congress. So it also made the Democrats who were in charge of Congress look bad. Um, and I think that's really the story of, of the erosion of the mixed economy. But when you say they were, they showed that they could win by attacking government, what specifically in government is the subject of the attack? I mean, it's easy to say that uh, taxes are something that people feel are too high and that they stifle growth. But it's not just about taxes. It's about uh, waste, fraud and abuse, something we hear about. I mean, what exactly is the uh, attack on government that seems to resonate so much with people these days? Well, I think it's it was clearly that taxes were too high. That was the first line of attack. And that was one of, you know, there was true popular tax revolts in the 1970s. Um, but it's interesting because that, I, and I don't think there's anything that more defines the Republican Party today than support for tax cuts. I mean, even Donald Trump, who's off the Republican reservation on a lot of issues, has endorsed essentially the same tax cut plan that all the other Republican candidates were uh, have been supporting, namely very steep uh, tax cuts, particularly focused on the highest income Americans. So anti-tax fervor was a big part of this. Um, and, uh, and even though uh, it was originally a very much a popular position, I think after the Reagan tax cuts of the early 1980s, Reagan actually turned around and started raising taxes uh, again in, with Democrats. And there was not the ki same kind of popular um, push for tax cuts in future years, even though Republicans got even more 
solidified behind that position. The other side of this was attacking government in a kind, as you said, waste, abuse, and this kind of amorphous idea that government supported those who couldn't support themselves. Now, sometimes that was explicit, as in Reagan's talking about welfare queens, or in recent years, the, you know, the talk about the 47% by Mitt Romney, um, the idea that there's these people who don't pay taxes, even though they pay payroll taxes and other state and local taxes, um, and that they are somehow getting a free ride. But that kind of view of government as for someone else, as really about redistribution rather than about broad-based prosperity, that shift, I think, also really makes it hard uh, for people to have faith in the mixed economy. And, and the last thing I would say, John, is that for most Americans, it's not uh, their j- distrust of government is really driven in part by their distaste about politics. And so the kind of strategy I talked about of kind of tearing down government to win uh, control of government has really colored every political debate because even people who support Bernie Sanders think our government is corrupt and not able to govern effectively on behalf of the people. And so um, part of what we want to do in this book, Paul and I want to do in this book, is just remind people that government isn't just about redistribution. And, and a lot of the things that government does make all of us better off. And we uh, need to recognize and build on the successes of the mixed economy because we face challenges just as great uh, that need just as much the strong thumb of government alongside the nimble fingers of the market uh, in the future. Is there something to be said, though, for for the notion that much of government is corrupt in the way it works? Our our political analyst, Bill Curry, who was part of the Clinton administration, now writes for Salon and other places about, uh, well, how he feels that some of the, the Clinton ideals have gone wrong. He constantly talks about Corruption in government being the the thing that drives most Americans away from political idealism, that drives them away from actually believing that government can do anything. Do you think that bad government, whenever it shows up, plays a role in all this? Oh, absolutely. Look, um, we are clear-eyed about um, the way in which uh, the weakening of the mixed economy has given rise to a whole set of pathologies. And I, I think the two of them that we write about the most in the book the, is what we call the the crisis of authority, right? The fact that we don't feel that we in a lot of areas, say the crisis over Ebola a few years back, or with our terrible tax system that's um, unable in many cases to collect the taxes that that people owe, particularly rich people owe, that in these cases uh, we're we're torn by these impulses. We really do need to to invest more in the CDC or invest more in the IRS, but the anti. Uh, anti-government fervor is so strong that every individual politician, even those that support these uh, programs and and agencies, uh, runs against government uh, to get into government. So uh, we wrote a piece a little while ago about how Hillary Clinton basically is unable to talk about her larger vision because basically she believes in using government pragmatically, but it's very hard to talk about that today. The second thing that we say has happened is what we we call the rise of the modern robber barons. Um, the, The the old robber barons, for those who, who don't know the history, were these uh, feudal uh, princes that, that controlled waterways, uh, the Rhine River in particular. Uh, and they had these uh, castles on the edge of the Rhine River, and they would put chains across the river. And if a, a ship came along carrying goods, they would ask that, they, that the, that the uh, ship pay these huge exorbitant tolls. And it completely shut down trade in much of Europe. Now, today we have robber barons that aren't as visible, but we have a lot of people who are basically using um, 
the weaknesses in our mixed economy to make money. I mentioned the healthcare example. I think the other two that are most notable are financial system, right? There's a lot of risk that gets put onto the rest of the economy that allows people in finance to make money. And uh, energy is another area, right? There's a lot of risk to our planet of our high carbon economy. And uh, that's a kind of rent, as they say in economics, um, that rent-seeking interests like the energy industry uh, enjoy. And the point is that in both those cases, right, if you think about finance and energy, the problem isn't that government is too active, right? That it's that it's it's not acting strongly enough. That we don't have a price on carbon. Uh, that we don't have uh, an effective way of limiting the systemic risk that that Wall Street is taking on. So that's our point. Is that. Yes, there's a lot of corruption. Yes, there's a lot of crony capitalism. But a lot of it is because our government isn't strong enough. And that's the paradox. And, and it, it, at the end of the book, we really try to resolve that paradox to talk about how we might rebuild some faith in the mixed economy. I, we got this tweet from John, which I think is, is right on the money here. It says, the problem with the government today is that the strong thumb has corporate tattoos all over it. And then his hashtag is <laughs> repeal Citizens United. How, how, big a, how big a piece of that is this? The fact that so much money is spent uh, in the political system by big corporations to get what they want. I mean, a lot of people say repeal Citizens United, uh, change the way we pay for elections. It's probably not just that simple, but that certainly is what's coming out of the Bernie Sanders campaign and many other people's mouths these days. Well, first, that's a that's a great line. I hope that it's OK if I use it in the future. <laughs> yeah, I I think that's right. That And Citizens United is part of the problem. Um, but um, the the fact is, is that even before Citizens United, these modern robber barons um, were able to uh, work their um, their dark magic in Washington. And, and most of the the most of the ways in which uh, special favors, um, which, again, often involve not getting the government <laughs> in the picture, right, not having it regulate you. A lot of that comes from lobbying. Um, the other group that I don't think, um, you know, we talk about enough here is. Uh, is the business organizations in Washington. So it, at, right after World War II, um, there was this group called the, the Committee for Economic Development, the CED, and it was basically the, the Washington business establishment, and it was pretty pro-government. It, it believed that government was, as, as one head of business put it, a useful and established reality. That is, you weren't going to roll it back and you could use it um, to achieve broader goals. And business supported things that were broadly good for the economy overall, like building the, the best highway system in the world. Um, today, the business groups are either very self-centered and parochial, like the business roundtable, which basically now is worried about stock options and other perks that CEOs receive, uh, or is has grown very allied with the Republican Party and very conservative. So the Chamber of Commerce has become essentially uh, a kind of wing of the Republican Party and a lobbying arm for particular industries. And, um, you may recall that during the 2009 healthcare fight, uh, the big health insurance organization actually laundered money through the Chamber of Commerce, had it do its lobbying on its behalf, against something, by the way, that, that I was pushing in Washington, the public option. Um, and then finally, you have the Koch brothers. You know, we talk a lot uh, in, you know, there's a lot of talk about them, and there's a wonderful new book by Jane Mayer about the Koch brothers. Um, but 
But I think we don't realize that they're really now a business organization. They have an enormous network across the states and in Washington, and they're pushing a view that is essentially, uh, if not libertarian, a, a view that says basically that government should be out of the picture, and that is pretty good if you're an energy company to have government not putting a price on carbon and not making you pay for the environmental cost of your activities. So that's a huge change, John. Um, the business community has has it's not just that individual businesses have changed, have become more financialized, but that the representatives of business are not looking toward common positive sum solutions, but instead much more for fairly extreme policy positions or their own bottom line. As we continue with Jacob Hacker, we want to get to some phone calls before the break here. Let's go to Joe in Hartford. Hi there, Joe. Go ahead. You're on Where We Live. Yeah, thanks for taking the call. I'm a big fan of uh, Jacob's work. Um, I just had a couple of comments and thoughts that, you know, this, and I agree with him completely, this really isn't about unions or teachers, minorities, or socialism. Uh, you know, when we spend $600 billion plus on our military and 20% of our health care costs is for profit, well, and corporate tax revenues are significantly down in the last 40 years, what this is is a spending problem, it, it, or not a spending problem so much as it is a simple math problem. And this anti-government rhetoric is, uh, is uh, just simply a race to the bottom, which... You know, everyone knows when capitalism is left towards with its own devices, uh, it does some things poorly, if not at all, and therefore government plays a complementary role in the markets and the economy. And my last point is that, you know, when we have 40-plus percent of the electric who, uh, who are protecting the corporate interests and, and, you know, forced to dig their own graves uh, and unwilling to recognize some of these things that Jacob is talking about, I'm wondering how we, what, what his thoughts are on how we address that. Well, Joe, thank you very much for the phone call. And, Jacob, but why don't you answer Joe? It'll help us get into the last segment here, too. Go ahead. Well, first, thanks, thanks, Joe. That was both very kind and a very helpful summary of much of my argument. Um, I, I, I want to step back before I, we talk about solutions and the, and the way forward just to, to sort of highlight something that I think Joe was talking about, um, and that is really the extent to which you were not having a, a, a rational discussion, and not not just. I mean, look, I recognize politics is not is not beanbag. That we 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 do we're, we're going to have a very fierce contested political debate, and I actually believe strongly that we should have. Um, real disagreement over these issues. If you go back to the 1940s, it was not all sweetness and light. The guy who essentially created our modern t industrial technological complex that helped seed those computer revolutions was a conservative Republican named Vannevar Bush, who recognized that you needed to have a pluralistic economy where you had government uh, playing an important role. So I just want to point out that this that we have essentially now a kind of hard, what we call a hard Randian side of debate, which I already talked about, which says basically, let's, you know, as Grover Norquist said, let's get government down to the size that we can drown it in the bathtub. Um, but then we also have a larger elite community uh, that's just very dismissive of government, like Silicon Valley tech entrepreneurs saying that it wouldn't matter if government shut down, or, um, you know, or the uh, financier Pete Peterson, who's seen as a moderate, um, has been saying for years, right, that government is out, uh, spending is out of control. We need to rein in our in so-called entitlement programs like Social Security. And the thing that doesn't get talked about, as Joe mentioned, is how much of that problem, that problem of um, of uh, entitlements, as uh, as as Peterson calls it, is about health care, right? And so we really do 
have ultimately uh, a problem of insufficient government authority being used where it matters. Um, and then there's lots of places where clearly we're, we're using government less effectively than we should. Um, so I want to talk about how we step forward, but I just want to remind um, everyone that, that the public has not bought into or most Americans have not bought into the more extreme view. But a lot of Americans essentially have been told for decades that all government spending is, is more or less wasteful, that they may like the particular programs they rely on, like Social Security or Medicare, but that the, the, but that the rest of government is essentially throwing money down the drain. And if we don't have a conversation about this, we're not going to have a, a reasonable debate about how we move forward. So we have to see the picture uh, clearly before we can have a, 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 any kind of discussion about where we go, for, go in the future. Well, and, and when we come back from a break, we'll talk about where we're going in the future with Jacob Hacker, who co-wrote with Paul Pearson, American Amnesia, How the War on Government Led Us to Forget What Made America Prosper. We'd like to hear from you. What do you see as the role of government or of the market? You see a return to the mixed economy that helped make us prosper in the 20th century. 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up on tomorrow's show, the state of Connecticut is drowning in budget problems. Local governments are trying to keep their heads above water as well. On our weekly news roundtable, The Wheelhouse, will discuss the latest efforts to mitigate these deficit problems while causing as little harm as possible. Here's a new idea that's been floated, Tax Yale University. We'll find out how that goes with uh, Harriet Jones from WMPR and the Hartford Current's Dan Haar, along with Colin McEnroe. It's in The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. That's tomorrow on Where We Live. Today in the program, we're talking with Jacob Hacker. He's a professor of political science and director of the Institution for Social and Policy Studies at Yale University, co-author of this new book, uh, American in Amnesia, How the War on Government Led Us to Forget What Made America Prosper. We've been talking an awful lot about what got us to this uh, place right now, Jacob Hacker. So let's talk a little bit about the solutions. I mean, it, it seems a little bit from reading, uh, you know, three quarters of your book to near the end that we're we're fairly doomed, right? We've we've <laughs> cast aside many of the things that you no, say made no. America great, and and now we we look into this abyss. What 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 will help pull us out? Well, first, let me just say, we uh, we wrote a piece for Foreign Affairs, and they titled it Make America Great Again. So I didn't know that we could use that. I thought it had been trademarked. but <laughs> You'll probably be hearing really from some are, lawyers, yeah. <laughs> we're really optimistic, and I know that's hard to believe uh, since you only read three quarters. But when you read the rest <laughs> of the book, and I, and I encourage you to do so— um, you know, I think there are a couple things that make us optimistic, and 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 they inform our idea about what can be done. So the first, the first is that our view is basically that we've been underperforming, uh, and and there's so many signs of that. Um, we uh, used to be the tallest people in the world, and now even if you exclude immigrants, uh, we're kind of a middling, mid-sized uh, country because uh, our health. Uh, has not been improving at the rate it has in other rich countries. Uh, we're not doing as well as we were in getting kids through college. Uh, we're not investing the way that we should in our infrastructure, as as anybody who lives in Connecticut uh, knows, uh, or in uh, or in education and and R and D. And and again, there's a lot of reforms that will be needed to ensure that those are efficient investments. But when you have trillions of dollars in unmet needs and in infrastructure, uh, that's a real problem for for a country's economic standing. So. That means 
perversely, that there's just a lot of money on the table. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit where reversing this kind of slide in, uh, in the use of the mixed economy would make enormous difference. And the second thing that makes us optimistic is, you know, you, you mentioned Citizens United earlier, and I think there are a lot of people out there who feel as if the system is so corrupt that there's just nothing that can be done. And, and I think that's part of the, the turn against government that I was talking about. But I actually don't believe that. Um, I believe that what we've seen is a bunch of r- relatively um, – small changes that have added up to a really big big change and that w- to reverse it we're going to have to pursue a set of integrated reforms that add up to a big uh, transformation and, and you know that's not as exciting for people as saying oh if we get rid of citizen united uh, you know the heavens will part and the world will be better but but it's really the truth about the mixed economy it was created by both republicans and democrats by business and labor and by a lot of uh, small but significant reforms that helped over time create a working system. And there was a positive cycle. The system worked. People in, uh, were more likely to trust it to do more in the future. So, you know, we see that in some areas. We've actually made big progress. Um, we've made big progress, for example, over the last generation in, in getting lead uh, out of our uh, children's bloodstream. And what we see at Flint, Michigan, is actually just a, a clear indication that we need to do more. And, and likewise, clean air means extra years of life. Um, the, the actions we've taken on tobacco and now are taking on, uh, with regard to obesity, these have improved people's lives immensely, and there's a lot of opportunities to do that in the future. Um, so that's the, that's the main message of optimism, is that there are an enormous number of positive sum solutions that will make almost everyone better off. Now the bad news, <laughs> John. <laughs> the bad news is, it's going to take some time, right? I mean, what do we do? We described 40 years of attacks on government, a concerted campaign against it. It's going to take serious investment in ideas and organization building and integrated political reforms. And we lay out a lot of those in the book. I just want to mention one that I think uh, doesn't get enough attention. We need to see farsighted business leaders as allies mm-hmm. in uh, restoring a well-functioning mixed economy. And that's where I think, you know, the we've really paid the price for not having a business leadership that is um, willing to talk about the the important role and necessary role for government. So my, you know, my hope, I have to say, it's very far, (laughs) it's very far-fetched, but my hope is that, you know, a Bill Gates or a Warren Buffett or even maybe a Michael Bloomberg will pick up this book um, or hear about it, <laughs> maybe they're listening right now, and we'll start to talk a little bit more about how essential it is. And, and Gates has done that a bit in talking about health, um, but that's not going to turn the tide by itself, but every little thing counts. And if we started to have a more reasonable discussion of government, which is pretty hard during uh, a Trump, uh, Trump mania, um, I think that we could have uh, we could pursue these kinds of reforms that we talk about in America Amnesia. You know, uh, actually, Ralph Nader wrote a book not too terribly long ago, a novel based on the notion that uh, America's, uh, some of America's most famous billionaires, most successful people would come together to help write some of the problems. And, and he talks about the Bill Gateses and the Warren Buffetts. And, but I think that there's a there's something very sad about that notion, too, Jacob, just just that we would have to rely on these great titans of business to step forward in some way and do something transformative that the power of individuals 
isn't as strong as it once was, but in in large part that has to do with the massive economic inequality that we have. I mean, right now, as you point out in your book, we have a population in which 1% of the people have an enormous amount of the overall wealth. Are we at a place where we can somehow or other get more power into the hands of more people just like us as opposed to the few people who you feel might really be able to make a difference in in changing the, the course of things? Well, I, I mean, I think that's absolutely essential and possible. And, and I, I would say that when, when I talk about how it's important to have uh, elite allies, if you will, of the mixed economy, I'm really pointing to this period after World War II again, which was distinctive in many ways. But one of the hallmarks of that period is that, as I said, business leaders saw the mixed economy as a useful and established reality. And they saw it as established in part because there was pressure on them from organized labor and there was pressure from moderate Republicans for them to accommodate. And where will that pressure come from today? I actually see it as coming from the kinds of movements that Bernie Sanders has called for. So here, you know, in a funny way, I, I, if we talk about the, the kind of governance that I think is going to be necessary and possible over the next 10 or 15 years, it looks something like what Clinton is outlining, Hillary Clinton. That is, you know, we're going to have to be pragmatic in certain ways because of the reality of the, and difficulty of making government uh, work effectively. At the same time, if you think about what's going to make that possible, it's going to be enormous pressure from, uh, from, from organizations that represent broad cross-sections of Americans. And uh, I, I would just mention that our current voting arrangements are a huge part of the problem here. And, and people don't recognize enough how far we've departed from our past and from other countries in the degree of, of not just political participation, but the huge imbalance between our presidential election years and every other election. Why do Republicans dominate Congress, dominate state houses? Well, one of the reasons is turnout is so low. Um, in most elections. In presidential election years, Republicans obviously have a hard time because there's a lot more young voters and minority voters coming to the polls. We need to make voting easier, and there's a huge uh, effort underway to make it harder. And that will help make votes matter more than dollars and create the kind of self-reinforcing pressure. I, mm. I think that's the point that I, that I really feel like People need to understand, while there's no magic bullet, there is a ton of money on the table. There's a lot of opportunities to make our society richer. And two, um, there, is, uh, there are a series of interlocking reforms that we lay out in the book that will help create the kind of positive self-reinforcing pressure that help make the mixed economy possible in the first place. Jacob Hacker is a professor of political science at Yale University. He has co-authored American Amnesia with Paul Pearson, How the War on Government Led Us to Forget What Made America Prosper. He joined us today from the Yale University studios. Jacob, it's always great to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining us here on Where We Live. Well, thank you, John, and and thanks to your listeners for their great comments. And thanks to producer Lydia Brown for putting together today's program. This is Where We Live.